This is an ABC podcast. Today we hear how the housing crisis in Queensland is leaving essential health workers without a place to rent. We've just had nowhere to go. I've exhausted all avenues. I've gone through the chain of command at work. Any house that's become available here in theatre, I've been onto it straight away and just been knocked back every time. And the tricky business of trapping feral cats off a remote island off the coast of Tasmania. There was one walk past the cage uh, last night. We had a camera out and you can see the cage oh, in the wow. background and it didn't go in to eat my chicken, oh, so wow. I was really... Oh, work on the recipe. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I was really disappointed about that. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country. Finding a rental has become an exhausting and often hopeless experience for many people across Queensland. As the housing crisis continues to deepen, it's now impacting the delivery of health care in rural and regional areas. Rachel McGee has this story. Colleen Clark never imagined she would be on the verge of homelessness. We've just had nowhere to go. I've exhausted all avenues. The 49-year-old is a nurse at the Theodore Hospital in central Queensland but can't find a new rental. She's been searching for almost a year now as the home she's living in is up for sale. The region is among the most difficult places in Queensland to find a rental with a vacancy rate of 0.7%. She says she has until next week to move out and doesn't know where to turn next. What do you do? Where do you go? But I would have thought, me being an essential worker, so to speak, I don't think I'm any different or any better to the next person, but, you know, like, we are having trouble getting staff and keeping staff here. So I just would have thought I would have had that little bit more um, help. That's all. A Queensland health spokesperson acknowledged that worker shortages are the greatest obstacle to sustainable regional, rural and remote health services. The spokesperson said support and incentives are offered to staff if they relocate to a rural or remote area. Ms Clark is already living rural and wants to stay but says it was becoming near impossible. I think it's sad when you've got someone like me who's permanent full-time, happy to stay here who's got the skill and ability, but they're not willing to help me. The Queensland Nurses and Midwifery Union's Beth Mole says it's now a critical issue impacting healthcare in rural and regional Queensland. We really need to actually have government turn their attention to this, both federal and state governments, because it's having an impact on the delivery of health services. For core workers like our nurses, midwives, teachers, police, ambulance officers, they're people who are really needed in regional and rural um, areas in particular. We need to make sure they've got the housing stock that will attract them to those areas, that they're really high quality housing, that they're affordable and they're appropriate for their families. Queensland Council of Social Services CEO Amy McVie says regional Queensland had become the most expensive part of Australia to live and the government needed to do more to work with the private sector to accelerate the supply of affordable housing. Uh, we do need government to do more. We need a plan uh, that looks at the housing need across the state, not just social housing, uh, but also affordable rental properties and a strategy to make sure uh, that across the next decade, 
we are uh, setting our state up to have enough housing. In a statement, a Queensland health spokesperson said regional areas are actively recruiting critical health staff and free or subsidised accommodation assistance may be provided as an incentive to attract new employees to a particular centre or facility. In a statement, Deputy Premier Stephen Miles said housing supply was one of the biggest issues facing Queensland and the government was taking action to improve the issue, which includes investing $21.7 million in extra support for those struggling to find a home in the private rental market. For now, Ms Clark has her sights set on the neighbouring town of Maura, but wishes she didn't have to move at all. Rachel McGee reporting there from Rockhampton. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Later on in the show, I'm going to take you to a group of very remote islands off the coast of Tasmania. Despite being remote, they have a big issue with feral cats. Well, logistics are the thing getting around these islands, so it's really accessed by a small plane or small boat. So it's piling everybody in the best we can and getting everybody here from Bridport is normally how it goes. This is ABC Australia Wide. We've just heard the difficulty nurse Colleen Clark is having finding a rental in Theodore in regional Queensland. Her story, unfortunately, is not unique in regional Australia. Hardly a day goes by that a lack of affordable housing in Australia doesn't dominate the headlines. But the stock of available housing in country areas has always been that bit smaller. Recent societal developments like the push to the bush during COVID in search of cheaper housing made that pool shrink again. And the emergence of Airbnb 10 years ago put big pressure on housing in regional towns, particularly those that rely on tourism. Professor Nicole Garn specialises in urban and regional planning at the University of Sydney. Now, Professor Garn, we we could literally put a housing crisis story to air from any given given place in Australia every day here on Australia Wide. And that would I'd say that's been the last three years. So what's gone wrong? Yeah, it's it's a really unfortunate sort of combination of events, particularly given, um, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, Australia was regarded to have one of the best housing systems in the world, both in terms of the quality of housing, in terms of the affordability of that housing, and in terms um, of, you know, the Australian housing industry as well, capacity to quickly deliver high-quality supply at a at a low cost. So, but it has been a slow boil and the issues in regional areas are similar but somewhat different to the major cities. In general terms, we did some different things in the in the 80s and we've also in Australia been caught up by some global trends as well. The main thing that people will be familiar with is a big change that happened towards the um, late 80s, early 90s was Finance actually became um, much more available to get. People could borrow more. We also had people on higher wages and we also had some really big government incentives to invest in property such as negative gearing, which people will be familiar with. Now, when interest rates started to come down, all of these factors together combined to give people a lot of money to invest in housing as a major asset. And so we saw prices, you know, start to rise and rise and rise and certainly rise much higher than incomes. 
governments stopped investing in providing social and affordable housing. So even in the mid-90s, more than 10% of new housing supply was being produced by government and at least 6% of households lived in social housing. Those were people on low incomes, but many of them able to use that stability to save and move into home ownership. And we shifted from providing that social housing to providing a very modest and now absolutely inadequate rental subsidy. So more people living in the private rental sector has meant higher competition for rents and a rental sector that was never designed for people to, you know, move to retirement living in rentals, so dominated by short-term leases and really the cards tipped in favour of a landlord, small landlord who needs to be able to take care of their asset, you know, they're in it for asset appreciation rather than long-term rents. And so, you know, we've got this system where house prices have become out of reach, there's intense competition in the rental market and really um, an inadequate um, form of government um, support, either in the form of social and affordable housing, the stock of which has been going backwards, or income support for very low um, income earners. You, you said that they're all, that's everything that's influenced where we are today, but you said that that played out quite differently in the regions. In what way did it? Some different things in regional areas. And, I mean, of course... Uh, from the major cities, which unfortunately is where a lot of um, policy um, sort of thought has emanated from in Australia, housing in the regional areas looked more affordable. Uh, but relative to incomes, of course, as, as residents of regional areas will know, house prices and rents were, um, you know, comparable to the urban areas. But we've tri- typically seen both a more um, homogenous housing stock. So we've seen mostly in regional areas detached homes on their own blocks, you know, suitable for nuclear families. And we've seen much more home ownership as the predominant tenure. So there hasn't been a lot of rental supply and the rental supply that there's been in the in regional areas has been one kind, you know, so the three, four bedroom house, not really suitable um, to the needs of, of, for instance, you know, hospitality workers. Over the past few years, we've had a return to regional areas, which actually is terrific when it comes to a long-term diverse economy in regional areas. But the housing market is yet to is yet to catch up. Combined with, and actually, many of many tourist towns have long depended on holiday homes for their accommodation infrastructure. But right now, that's exacerbating the rental squeeze because we've got demand, um, we've got tourism demand and we've got holiday homes competing with the rental stock for permanent residents. And so that's really exacerbating the problem. I was quite surprised that it's 10 years um, here in Australia that Airbnb has been on the scene. How much did that affect the availability of housing in many regional areas? Look, it's hard to give a definitive answer in part because the platforms such as Airbnb don't share their data with with local government and and so that makes it very difficult to know. But what we do know is this. In Australia for the past, you know, 20 years that we've been worried about rising affordability pressures, there's been one thing that governments at all levels, particularly Commonwealth, particularly state, 
have said, and that is we need new supply, we need new supply. So anything that takes supply out of the market as um, short-term rentals do, particularly when we've got permanent rental stock converting to um, short-term rentals. And that's one of the things that Airbnb and those online platforms made much easier um, to happen. So anything that we've got that drains supply out of the market will make things worse. If we ended um, holiday homes in regional areas tomorrow, would that fix the problem? It wouldn't, but releasing new supply onto the rental market would make a significant short-term difference. And so we do need to take very seriously the risk that more homes might be um, converted, for instance, to um, to the short-term rental market. And we need to look at whether um, in some places there's a need to wind this back. Given yesterday we saw another interest rate rise and and we know there's more to come, what effect do you see that having on housing supply? Unfortunately, in Australia, we seem to be dependent on house prices rising in order to sort of maintain high levels of new housing production. When house prices start to moderate or even fall, we do at the end of the day start to see lower levels of new construction. And and new construction is an important part of what we need to do for a healthy housing system. But I think the bigger worry is that we're going to shift from the deposit gap being a barrier to first-home buyers getting into the market to affordability now being a problem that's going to affect a much wider cohort of existing homeowners. And that's that's a situation that we haven't been in in Australia for a very long time. And, in fact, um, it's really unprecedented that we see... Um, Recent home buyers, and by recent, I mean you know, anyone really who's bought into the market in the past decade or so, have actually taken on very large loans and now are facing the prospect of very significant increases in their um, mortgage repayments. Well, how we're seeing that play out in the media is that there's there's kind of been this pitting of millennials against boomers in terms of what they had to put up with to get into the housing market. And it's kind of interesting how that's, you know, that's kind of been playing out for the last week or so. What do you think about that way of having the conversation? Oh, it's extremely unproductive. All of the academic evidence and in fact, everybody's lived experience points to the fact that 20 years ago, in fact, um, when I purchased my first house with my partner, we were able to save a deposit and manage the repayments on the basis of our wages. Within a, you know, it took us four or five years to save that deposit. But now it takes, you know, no matter how good people are at spending, the, all of the evidence shows that they're looking at, you know, eight to 15 years to save a deposit. And then they're faced with very, very high repayments as well. Almost impossible for, for most um, people. And that, those are dual income households um, who don't have access to uh, parental support or very high incomes to enter home ownership. Added to that, the problem of an expensive and competitive rental market with rents now consuming much higher proportions of, of moderate household incomes than ever before. 
And Professor Nicole Garn, when that happens, then what happens is the spectre of negative gearing raises its head because this is something that people feel quite sore about who are coming into the market. Do you think a federal government will ever be game enough to touch tax incentives like negative gearing? Look, it's an interesting it's an interesting question and you can understand why um, the millennials feel so put out when, you know, baby boomers to whether they benefit directly from negative gearing or indirectly via the value of their own home having increased thanks to demand side incentives like negative gearing. Um, you know, you can see why um, private renters um, and private renting millennials feel as though it's also unfair. I'm not sure whether we'll see um, political change to negative gearing, but I would make the point that right now it would make much, much more sense if we're talking about providing a subsidy to anyone in the housing system, it would make much more sense to provide that subsidy to low-income private renters than it does to provide that subsidy to uh, to landlords. How interesting. Professor Nicole Garn, she specialises in urban and regional planning at the University of Sydney. Thanks for taking the time out to talk to Australia Wide today. Thanks very much. We are one. ABC Radio. And right now you're listening to Australia Wide. The impact that free-ranging cats have on wildlife is well known. Feral cats are estimated to kill more than a billion reptiles, birds, frogs and mammals in Australia each year. On a remote island in the Bass Strait, there's an effort underway to protect native species from feral predators by ridding the island of feral cats. Lucy Cotting has the story. Here on an island off the coast of Tasmania, a team has gathered to hunt down feral animals. Uh, the number is I-811. Today we're on Lungtalanana, which is a beautiful yeah. island just south of Cape Barron in the Bass Strait. Well, this week we've got a, a massive project pulled together to look at doing some operational planning for the cat control project that is part of the island land management work that we're doing. This is bringing together a variety of different skills and knowledges in order for us to, to make a, a really sweet operational plan to get rid of these cats. That's Andre Sculthorpe, a land management coordinator with the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre. That one's a tabby, it looks like. I've travelled to Lungtalanana, also known as Clark Island. It's an Indigenous protected area. In Tasmania's Ferno group of islands, the feral cats on this island are killing native species and so far they've proved difficult to trap. They don't seem to be interested in the trap bait of chicken or fish because of the bounty of food to be found on the island. To get on top of this problem, Andre has assembled a crack team. Well, the team, we've got the, the Pakana Rangers from the TAC and we've also got the new IPA Sea Country Rangers and we've got a whole bunch of different people. We've got Mike Johnson who's helping out with the operational plan. We've got Patrick from WWF. We've got John who's a cat trapping expert from Hobart and we've got Yvonne who's going to be assisting us with developing some drone monitoring. It must take a lot to get all of these people here 
in the same week and for the amount of time that you need them to be here. How much planning has gone into this? Well, logistics are the thing getting around these islands, so it's really accessed by a small plane or small boat. So it's piling everybody in the best we can and getting everybody here from Bridport is normally how it goes. Mm. So when you come, you want to make sure you've got everything you need because if you've forgotten something, that's it, it's gone. So what will the next few days look like here? Well, one of the main tasks for this week is to service the, the camera traps. So we've got a network of 50 camera traps set up around the island, which stay running for six months. And after every six months, we need to change the batteries and get the cameras off the SD cards. And so that's quite a mission because some of the tracks aren't too great. So it's slow going in the four-wheel drives, getting around them. So it's probably a couple of days' work just in doing that. The second thing we're doing is trialling some trapping, some cage trapping. So cage trapping can be a tricky exercise. It, it can be effective at catching cats, but there's also some considerations around timing and what kind of bait you use and in which landscapes they're effective and which they're not. I think I'll go and speak to your drone. I'm going to call them a drone master. Um, <laughs> so how important will drones be to what you're doing today? With the cats, they're pretty cagey, and in this scrub area, it can be hard to locate them. So what we're hoping for with the drone is to find other ways of locating cats where we can't see them. So from the air with a drone and using uh, thermal or infrared technology may be useful, but this is going to be a trial. So today we're going to be putting up the drone to see what we can actually see. That drone master is Yvonne Teo of the University of Tasmania. I'm using my drone to look at the vegetation and hopefully using thermal camera to look at cats as well. So yeah, I'm just here using drone to see whether it works to look at vegetation, set up waypoints, um, take photos and hopefully I'll be able to see a few cats as well, Mm. which can be quite challenging because they might hide in really thick bushes um, and that's one of the, the problems using drones or even thermal cameras because it can be really hard to spot them. Could have went up. Packin arrangers Dion Everett and David Lowry are checking traps and also looking at images captured by a motion-activated camera. We'll just have a look at the footage that we've downloaded from the memory card, which will not only tell us what animals are commuting back and forward through this track, it'll also let us know if our flash is working properly and if we need to offset our camera to get a better picture taken um, over this track. Look at that one. Tortoiseshell cat, yes, that'd be a female. She's, we're unsure what she, why she's travelling such fast areas at the moment, but she seems to be getting around. Black cat. Yeah, black cat, we have absolutely no idea where he is. Also helping out on this project is John Bowden. He's a bit of an expert in cat trapping, having trapped almost a 1,000 cats in Tasmania in less than a decade. I'm only here for a week, but I've been here three days now. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Beautiful yeah. spot. Uh, how many traps will you put out while you're here? Well, uh, I brought six over. There was there was 10 already on the island, so we've got 16, 16 cage traps out at the moment. Is there a particular strategy to where they're placed? Yeah, we. well, as you see, we're standing here. There's a, there's a road coming... I'm in down here heading to the north and we've got one one another road or, or just a track going going east west and so the cats follow the roads and so you've got chances of a cat coming along that road and coming along and this is close to the corner and so as you know when there's a, you get an intersection you get more likely to get, get traffic coming through yeah. and so this is this is here. And you can see with this trap is 
is set. Mm. We've got it buried down into the sand so the cat's not walking walking on the wire. So you, you push it down into the sand and the cat feels is meant to feel far more comfortable going in. And there's yeah. a bit of a tasty snack in there too. What's yeah, that? Yeah, so I changed the fresh bait as essential. So I'll be changing the bait this evening. And so we use fish. Everything's cooked. Uh, fish or chicken is a... Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And have you caught a cat yet? No, oh, not oh, yet. I'm still <laughs> still hopeful, but no, at the moment we we haven't caught one. Mm. Yeah. But they're definitely here. Oh yes, there's definitely there was there was one walk past the cage uh, last night. We had a camera out, and you can see the cage oh, in the wow. background. And it didn't go in to eat my chicken, oh, so wow. I was really you work on the recipe. Oh <laughs> yeah, I was really disappointed about that. But yeah. I didn't cook that chicken. Okay, no. all right. Somebody did something wrong there. <laughs> Feral cat controller John Bowden, who was part of a team working on a project to eliminate feral cats from Clark Island in the Farno Group. And he was speaking there with our reporter, Lucy Cotting. And that's Australia Wide for this Wednesday. Remember, if you miss a show, you can always listen back to Australia Wide on the ABC Listen app. Just go to the Listen app, search Australia Wide and you will find us there. And we'd love if you'd hit subscribe while you're at it, because the more people who listen, the better. You can hear great stories from all around Australia whenever you want to. I'm Sinead Mankin. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.